Welcome to the Mornings with Sue and Andy podcast for Wednesday, May 11th. We begin with a look at the concept of a four-day work week. Has the pandemic changed the way we work forever? And does this mean it's time to look at shortening the current five-day work week model? We discuss with a professor of economics from the University of Toronto. It's a new approach to healthcare that takes the focus off of medicine to promote healthy living through a healthy diet. We get some details on the new fresh food prescription program running in Guelph, Ontario. Next, it's our monthly conversation with Dr. Axel Morenschlager, Director of Conservation and Science at the Wilder Institute, Calgary Zoo. This time out, Dr. Morenschlager brings us the story of the endangered sage grouse. And finally, it's a big part of our radio station, our annual Calgary Children's Foundation Radiothon that takes place every December. Yesterday was Disbursement Day, the day the Foundation's board members choose which local organizations will receive dollars that are raised during the fundraising drive. John Voss, Regional Director for Chorus Radio, joins us to reveal the chosen charities for this year. Could we soon see the end of the Monday to Friday 9 to 5 work week? With offices reopening and employees coming back after a couple of years of working from home, some are opting to test out the four-day work week. Well, Dr. Clementine Van Effenter is an assistant professor of economics at the University of Toronto and joins us to explain how this might actually work. Good morning, doctor. Thanks so much for joining us. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Okay, so uh, four-day work week, you can approach it in a couple of different ways, correct? Yeah, so it's important to clarify what we actually means by these four-day work week, whether we are talking about, and what is actually mostly uh, the common way of looking at it is the reducing hours and not necessarily compressing them over the same, uh, the same number of hours over less days. So we have to keep in mind that this is not a new thing. Like we have gradually reduced the number of hours worked within a typical work week since the late 19th century. So now I think like this idea is getting more traction, especially in the aftermath of uh, the COVID-19 pandemic. All right. So let's talk about, you know, we've changed the hours or changed kind of the, the structure of how we work, but does that change productivity? Yeah, that's a good question. So when we talk about the four-day work week, we want to know whether this would impact productivity, job creation, but also well-being, health, and potentially even inequality. So what do we know about the impact of work week reduction on productivity? What we know is that is actually coming from some studies on a very specific sample of workers, which is usually those working call centers. And what we know is that as the number of hours worked increases, the average handling time for a call increases, which means that agents become less productive. And that result shows that fatigue can play an important role in driving our productivity. And that's true even in jobs with mostly part-time workers. So if there's any link between productivity and working hours, it goes in the direction of improved productivity gains through the reduction of working hours. So that being said, what would some of the challenges be for companies who might even be contemplating this four-day workweek idea? Yeah, so it very much depends on some technical aspects uh, and the type of activities that these companies uh, are in. So, for instance, if these companies require coordination between workers, if you need to have a team working together, if certain tasks can only perform when everyone is there, then you need to make sure that the schedules are going to be aligned. To the contrary, if you need to have a continuous 
contact with uh, clients, for instance, if you need your shop to be open every day, then you need to make sure that there's going to be a staggered uh, day off so that there will always be someone to uh, be in contact with clients. So that's going to very much depend on coordination, on setup costs, like what you have to put in place before you start the activity. And that would be very much um, industry and firm specific. All right. What about, you know, we talked about the company's needs. What about the employees? Is a, a four-day or a, a restructured work week, week, work week, excuse <laughs> me, doctor, um, right for everyone or certain people that would not be a good fit? That's a, that's a good point. So, uh, so far, we don't have actually a lot of data on uh, how people's valuation of their own time has changed. But we have some anecdotal evidence that uh, workers these days, especially in the context of, you know, what we talk about, this labor shortages uh, in many uh, econ- economies, workers are less eager to do low-paid, uh, you know, debt and service and hospitality work, and they potentially want to decide to spend more time on family education or leisure. Um, but one thing that's important to keep in mind is that these workers are not necessarily going to consider alternative work if that means cutting wages. So there is a conversation that has to happen about these non-wage amenities, such as flexible scheduling, but also about uh, wages and working condition in low-paying jobs as a whole. That makes sense. Uh, Economically speaking, doctor, do do you think overall this is a good idea in your opinion? So I think it very much depends on whether firms are going to be able to make the necessary investments in human and physical capital to facilitate these transitions. The same way that it was done during the pandemic, we've seen that, you know, it was basically a mass social experiment for working from home, where uh, all of a sudden a lot of firms transition and now these activities are potentially going to uh, stay uh, remote. So it's going to depend on whether they are able to uh, continue to offer attractive wages and make the necessary investment so that there might be a cost in the short run, but potential benefits in the long run, because we have some evidence that the reduction of work hours can improve health, job and life satisfaction as a whole. So if you have a happier workforce, potentially this could increase your sales as well. Mm. Dr. Ethentar, uh, we're in Calgary. You're uh, based in Toronto at the University of Toronto. We're talking about in your nation. I'm wondering, is this a phenomenon that's happening across the globe as far as looking at these switches? So there are definitely some global uh, discussion about, you know, working conditions as a whole and like how to improve uh, working conditions of low wage earners, particularly in the United States. But there has been also experiments about reducing the number of work hours per week in many countries, particularly in Europe, uh, where, for instance, in France, Ninety-eight, we had a, a you know nationwide reduction of the work week, um, for which we didn't have strong effects in terms of job creation and unemployment. What we did have some improvement in terms of health, in terms of well-being and job satisfaction, for instance. Well, we're going to open it up and let our listeners uh, let us know what they think about the four-day work week idea. We thank you for your time this morning. Appreciate the conversation. Thank you very much. Have Thank a good you. day. You too. Dr. Clementine Van Effenter, Assistant Professor of Economics at the University of Toronto. Health professionals in Ontario have been prescribing their patients food vouchers so they can afford fresh fruits and vegetables. These prescriptions are part of a program to support affordable, healthy eating. The program lead, Abby Richter, joins us to explain what her fresh food prescription program is all about. Good morning to you, Abby. Hi there. Good morning. Thank you for taking the time with us. Uh, can you tell us, uh, to begin with, how did this program begin? 
Yeah, so it began um, out of the seed, which is a do-it-together food movement in Ontario. And we noticed that dietitians and doctors were in, um, encouraging patients to eat healthy food, but we recognized that our patients and our participants of the program didn't have the money to afford that. So we started looking into avenues to be able to support them in following those recommendations. Really smart. I mean, we're hearing from out here in the West, I believe it's BC that was starting to give prescriptions for gym memberships, for example, for people who couldn't afford that as well. So in this sense, with fresh fruit, fresh vegetables, how do folks qualify for that? Mm-hmm. So to qualify, um, they have to be a patient at our Guelph Community Health Center, and they also need to be um, food insecure, which we do a screening for that. So they don't have enough money to buy the food that they um, need. And they also have to have a chronic health condition that can be affected by um changing diet along with other things, but that could be um, high blood pressure, high um, like dyslipidemia, high cholesterol, um, and other uh, nutrient-related chronic health conditions like iron deficiency anemia and those types of diseases. I mean, can you explain the nuts and bolts of it? Like, I know when I get a prescription, it's written on a little (laughs) piece of paper. I can't understand the doctor's (laughs) writing to begin with, but the pharmacist can't. What what does the process look like? Do you have a checklist of foods and is there a certain amount that a patient would get? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so um, once a um, a patient is um, deemed to qualify for this program through their health provider, we then reach out to them um, to be part of the program. So there's two big nuts and bolts of the program. The one um, piece is people um, receive online vouchers that are $10 per person in the household per week to buy fruits and vegetables. Um, The fruits and vegetables are a bit uh, cheaper than what we find in the grocery store because our organization can get a a bit of a discount. And then um, they order weekly for a year, our program is right now, and they receive that fruit and vegetables uh, delivered to them. But there's other programs in Ontario that are are a little bit different, but they uh, work the same way in terms of the vouchers. Um, We have a huge selection of fruits and vegetables, and the seed tries to get as much um, local produce as possible, especially in this season. And then the other part of the program is we are tracking outcomes of the program. So we want to make sure this is um, really helpful for participants. So we're looking at qualitative data. So did um, patients or participants really like this program? Did it work for them? Did it save them money? That sort of thing. Um, And then we're also looking at quantitative data. So we're taking some blood work and some blood pressure levels to see what is the outcome of of these prescriptions. Brilliant. Before we let you go, plans to, to, you know, help expand this maybe to the rest of Canada? Yeah, we really want to, um, we're, we're working on some knowledge dissemination and some program planning upcoming. And we know that if we want to, you know, reach policymakers and government that we do need to scale up. So we're definitely looking at the horizon to, to scale up this program. Very interesting concept. And it's, uh, I think, a step in the right direction myself. Mm-hmm. Uh, thanks so much for your time, Abby. Thank you so much. That is Abby Richter, registered dietitian and the program lead for the Fresh Food Prescription Program located in Guelph, Ontario.
The greater sage grouse is possibly one of Canada's most endangered species. Lots of factors threatening their existence, like habitat loss and extreme weather. We've talked about it before, and to get an update, we are joined this morning by Dr. Axel Morenschlager of the Wilder Institute Calgary Zoo. He is their director of conservation and science. We call him the nature doctor, and he joins us now. Hi, Axel. Thanks for being with us. Thank you, and good morning. All right, let's talk about the greater sage grouse. Just how endangered are they? How many are left? Yeah, they're very endangered, and uh, first we have to sort of get to know them a bit. As we speak about getting to know them, we just have to ask you, have you ever experienced a setting where guys are strutting around or dancing, acting all macho, and they, they puff up their chests proudly to try and impress some girls? Very Cowboys often. dance hall? Right here on the radio station every morning with Andy. Is that right? Okay, mm-hmm. sorry. Oh, that's excellent. I think you should post a video of that. Okay. <laughs> um, yeah, this is exactly what's happening with sage grouse, greater sage grouse. Most people have never seen a sage grouse before because they're so rare and they only exist in native prairie areas where there's abundant sage, right? Um, and they, but it is this amazing behavior because the males, they strut around and they can actually puff up these air sacs that pop out of their chest and when they release it, it makes this booming sound that can be heard across the prairies for a number of kilometers. And at the same time, they sort of um, try to splay out their tail feathers like a peacock, and they're sort of black, but they have these these very fashionable accents of white on them. And, and you know, we're hoping that that's just irresistible um, for the, the girls that are, that are checking them out. Um, so this is all happening right now, maybe like this morning even. And uh, and that's wonderful. The bad news is that crater sage girls uh, are almost gone from the country. Um, it looked like they, they would be gone actually about 10 years ago, but one thought there might be a 90% likelihood that we would be gone by now. And they're not. So that's, that's a good thing. And it means that various different types of conservation efforts of multiple organizations are really making a difference. The main thing is, is they have issues with the, the quality of habitat that is left for them and increased predation as well. Um, so it, it's quite precious. And, you know, these, uh, these birds are a part of our heritage. You know, they, they're sort of the size of a pheasant. But, you know, pheasants are introduced from another continent, right? Uh, the greater sage grouse is a, is a part of our Canadian natural heritage. And one thing that really touched me some time ago is, is meeting Joan Snyder, a remarkable woman that grew up during the Great Depression. And she sadly passed away just recently. But she remembered sage grouse populations was a precious part of her childhood. In fact, she helped fund the world's first reintroduction facility for sage grouse at the Wild Institute Calgary Zoo. And she named it after her parents, which I thought was really touching. So our animal care and veterinary facility teams have been just working now for a couple of years, doing a wonderful job to develop the first facilities to breed this endangered species for release into the wild. Dr. Morslug, I want to you know ask you because everything you talk about super detail oriented. You work in conjunction with other institutions across the globe, but the minds behind it and a lot of what you do is is for the first time. So there's not a lot of a roadmap. Let's talk about the patience and the timeline. Uh, you know, for reaching a goal like restoring a population like these grouse, and uh, you know the patience involved. Yeah, it takes patience. You know, the the reason why endangered species are endangered is that something's gone terribly wrong, right? And you, you have to try and fix it. And oftentimes it's not easy to know exactly even what went wrong. So you need to do science to, you know, uncover basically, kind of like in a mystery, you need to figure it out. 
And that takes patience. It also takes collaboration. Um, and it takes organizations working together. You know, for instance, in this case, these efforts are supported through a range of partners and funders, including Alberta Environment and Parks, Environment and Climate Change Canada, um, Parks Canada, and the Nature Conservancy of Canada. It takes that long haul, you know, to try things, to, to try and make a difference. And and so then it becomes really exciting when you're trying so hard for so long to to do something amazing. Um, and, and, and like you know, about a, a month ago, you have releases back into the wild, you know. Uh, so it's it's really exciting. Um, Sage Girl said that we're born and our facilities are, are out there right now. Our conservation and science teams are working really hard monitoring them. And we're pretty excited with some things that we're seeing. It, it's a dangerous world for Sage Girls out there, but we're so excited that our own Sage Girls are now seen dancing with their wild counterparts. They're on legs right now. And some of the females are even starting to constrain their movements, meaning they're not moving around so much anymore. They're starting to settle into some brush, maybe some sagebrush. And so we're hopeful that they're actually starting to establish nests out there that could yield eggs. And if those eggs, you know, turn into chicks, and if those chicks survive for a year, it can it can grow those populations. As I say, it's so dangerous out there in the, in the wild the chance of an egg actually making it to an adult that breeds a year later is about 2%. Oh, wow. But, but basically, we have to get enough birds out there that survive well enough, mm-hmm. and then we can help to stabilize and grow those populations again. You always paint such a beautiful picture. Thank you so much for joining us. Appreciate the update. Thank you so much, and thank you for supporting wildlife conservation. Always. Thanks, Dr. Axel Morenschlager of the Wilder Institute Calgary Zoo, the Director of Conservation and Science. She said it's cold outside and she hears me rain cold. 819 mornings with Sue and Andy here on 770 CHQR. Yesterday was a big day. It's called Disbursement Day, the day the board chooses which charities will receive dollars raised on our annual Pledge Day, where our CHQR listeners donated to the Calgary Children's Foundation. Joining us with details is John Voss, Regional Program Director for Chorus Radio. Good morning to you, John. Andrew, good morning, Sue. Good morning, How are you? Before we get to exactly where the monies will be going, if you can break down, you know, how it's decided uh, which worthwhile causes and organizations uh, are considered. You know, that's the heart of the issue, right, is... We have a, a open application process that, you know, after we uh, do Pledge Day in December, we we cast out. We have advertising on the radio station, our website, the Calgary Children's Foundation uh, dot com, and you know, various charities can apply. And we vet their application, go through sort of their their needs and how they fit into the criteria that we've set out. You know, because we want to. Focus this on helping uh, kids in need in Calgary and Southern Alberta, and so we get uh, we got uh, plus fifty applications uh, for for funding this year, and from a whole wide variety. And there's the rub. There's the difficult piece mm-hmm. is that the application you know element is is pretty straightforward. It's then for the board to decide. Okay. How are we going to fund all of these different organizations? And invariably, uh, some just don't get the funding that they, they've asked for because we've only got so much to go around. And that must be the hard part, right? It's just it's, you you must read all the applications and just think, boy, we'd like to give it to everyone. No, it's not possible. So you try to disperse it the best 
as possible to make the most difference. So who's getting it this year? Yeah, you know, and so we, we stretched the dollars as much as possible. And, you know, during the course of the, the board meeting, we had a good discussion about sort of how we focus in on zeroing in the dollars for the kids that are in need. And one of the board members, Len Perry, pointed out that this pandemic, one of the consequences of the pandemic for sure is, you know, the mental well-being and mental health of young people. Mm-hmm. And so we we doubled back and looked at the organizations that are in that realm, places like the Calgary Counseling Center, the Distress Center. And those were ones that, yep, we're going to help them. Uh, Alberta Adolescent Recovery Center. Yep, we're going to help them. The pieces that uh, really zeroed in on, you know, the mental well-being, because I think that is a, a very acute item that we're seeing as a result uh, as we come out of hopefully this pandemic and then we we went to the, the you know the standbys the the organizations that do camps camp catagazoo the camp bonaventure those those places that you know give disadvantaged kids a place to go in the summer and then some of the you know high needs areas we funded uh a park in Okotoks that is is building a playground that is accessible to kids that are disabled and like it, it's those sort of things in the end we we dispersed one hundred and eighty thousand dollars to twenty five different organizations and so we really took our time and and so in some cases we weren't able to meet their complete request, but we said look we we want to help them in some respects and the other thing that's quite interesting you know it's talk about partnering up. Uh, Shaw Charity uh, Classic, as everybody knows, they do uh, a birdies for kids exercise. So some of these charities, when we give them $5,000, Shaw Charity Birdies for Kids helps match that. So we were able to look at some of these and say, okay, if we give them X, well, the Shaw Charity Classic will match that up. So we were able to stretch the dollars even further. So it was a, it was a really good day. Awesome. Awesome stuff, and mm-hmm. we know that now the money's been dispersed. These organizations can do the great works that they do in the city and all eyes on December 2022. Thanks so much for the update, John. We appreciate hey, it. Thanks for the time. Nice to speak to you. John Voss, Regional Program Director for Chorus Radio. And again, 365 days a year. Mm-hmm. The elves behind the Calgary mm-hmm. Children's Foundation doing their work. More info at calgarychildrensfoundation.com. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcast, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcasts. And tune in to Mornings with Sue and Andy from 530 to 9 every weekday morning on 770 CHQR.